Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. And Connor, what is Close Talking? You know, I'm so glad you asked. And I was just about to say, in case you hadn't asked, Close Talking is in fact the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast. Rock and roll. We have yet another wonderful poem for you this week. It is in fact an excerpt from a book. The book is Don't Let Me Be Lonely by Claudia Rankin, who you may know from her book, Citizen, an American Lyric, which burst onto the American scene in 2014 and is probably one of the best-selling books of poetry slash lyrical nonfiction in recent memory. And it even, I think it was, I know that Ferguson happened that year and there were a number of Black Lives Matter protests around the country and you could see people uh, joining protests with the copy of Citizen. And yeah, she is probably most well known for that book, which I believe won the National Book Critics Circle Award. It was a finalist for the National Book Award and is a poet, a playwright. Um, She was uh, born in Kingston, Jamaica, and is really one of the the most, I think, trenchant writers on a number of topics, but specifically racism in America and what she has sort of explored as, quote, ethical loneliness, which I believe I've we've probably talked about earlier on earlier episodes. She's probably the most referenced <laughs> writer from me on this podcast that we have yet to do a poem about, um, or at least one of them. But this excerpt is from Don't Let Me Be Lonely, which was the book that she came out with before Citizen. And it's a series of prose poems slash kind of essays. And it's a really marvelous book. And all I'll say about it before reading it is that to mark section breaks, there's little pictures of a, of a static TV that just appear and dot the pages of the book. I, I love this excerpt. It's a little longer, but it's also a prose piece. Um, And so there's a few different sections. And so I'll just pause for like a little bit longer when those happen. Just long enough for us to form the image of a static TV in our minds. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So this is from Don't Let Me Be Lonely by Claudia Rankin. Cornell West makes the point that hope is different from American optimism. After the initial presidential election results come in, I stop watching the news. I want to continue watching, charting, and discussing the counts, the recounts, the hand counts, but I cannot. I lose hope. However Bush came to have won, he would still be winning 10 days later, and we would still be in the throes of our American optimism. All the non-reporting is a distraction from Bush himself. The same Bush who can't remember if two or three people were convicted for dragging a black man to his death 
in his home state of Texas. You don't remember because you don't care. Sometimes my mother's voice swells and fills my forehead. Mostly I resist the flooding, but in Bush's case, I find myself talking to the television screen. You don't know because you don't care. Then, like all things impassioned, this voice takes on a life of its own. You don't know because you don't bloody care, do you? I forget things too. It makes me sad, or it makes me the saddest. The sadness is not really about George W. or our American optimism. The sadness lives in the recognition that a life can not matter. Or, as there are billions of lives, my sadness is alive alongside the recognition that billions of lives never mattered. I write this without breaking my heart, without bursting into anything. Perhaps this is the real source of my sadness. Or perhaps Emily Dickinson, my love, hope, was never a thing with feathers. I don't know. I just find when the news comes on, I switch the channel. This new tendency might be indicative of a deepening personality flaw. IMH, the inability to maintain hope, which translates into no innate trust in the supreme laws that govern us. Cornell West says, this is what is wrong with black people today. Too nihilistic, too scarred by hope, too hope, too experienced, too experience, too close to dead is what I think. And there you go. It's a powerful excerpt. Yeah, it really is. It is a wonderful book. As as kind of, I think, this excerpt shows, it's a very interesting meditation on the state of being Black in America, what all of that entails, the kind of sadness and loneliness that accompanies that, the sort of like, the speaker talks about the election of George W. Bush, so this is, you know, like in the, the 2000s, um, so there's kind of like the political scene and the political situation you know the war in iraq comes up in in other parts of the book and also like television and the news and like kind of being a consumer of of that stuff i guess and its effects on us and then sort of like writing you know trying to write sort of like within all those i guess and yeah, I don't know. I just find it like very moving, but also just very interesting. Like it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's similar in some ways to Maggie Nelson uh, in Bluettes or the Argonauts. Um, if you've read those, which are sort of prose poem-y pieces that are kind of like, arguably more nonfiction essay types um, that are like really about thinking through certain problems. There's a very interesting essay by Ben Lerner 
who uh, you may know um, from his books. Uh, he is a poet, but he's most known for his novels, which always feature a poet protagonist very similar to Ben Lerner. 1004 or Leaving the Atosha Station. He has a newer one, The Topeka School, I think. And then he also has an essay called like The Hatred of Poetry. But this is about sort of comparing Claudia Rankin and Maggie Nelson. It's a very, we'll link to this essay because I, I found it very interesting. Um, and it's specifically about Bluets by Na Maggie Nelson and then Don't Let Me Be Lonely. Um, but there's, I'll just quote this. I find it like an interesting entry point. Um, throughout Don't Let Me Be Lonely, the traditional lyric attributes of emotional immediacy and intensity are replaced with the problem of a kind of contemporary anesthesia, the repression of the reality of death, the leveling of tragedy into another kind of infotainment in a culture of spectacle, and the mediation of experience by technologies ranging from television to pharmaceuticals. The problem of the deadening of feeling finds its formal correlative in a flat prose in which verse can appear only in citation or paratext. Um, for example, a Dickinson poem reproduced in the notes. And just kind of like bringing it back to this poet, this, this excerpt, you know, we have like, the Dickinson poem, you know, uh, and Emily Dickinson, my love, perhaps hope was never a thing with feathers. And what Lerner's kind of saying is like, there's a kind of like deliberate flatness to the tone of this, these prose excerpts, which are kind of like the opposite of a lot of what you might usually associate with like lyric poetry. Um, which we talk about a lot, which is like, you know, the production of that, like, intense emotional encounter, you know, where like, there's like the all of a sudden at the end, and then you're like, ba -ba -bum, like, you know, um. <laughs> the big build sort of like in what the living do, or the really intense language, like in Cinco de Mayo. Exactly, exactly. And so anyway, it, yeah, I just I find that to be a a really interesting part of both this excerpt, but also the book and an interesting way of navigating like a different sort of sets of emotional experiences. Like, you know, the, I, I like his phrase of like contemporary anesthesia. We've talked, I think, you know, in the past couple episodes about like how the visibility of black people in the media or the mainstream often takes the form of this tragedy or this suffering and it's this kind of like barrage of sort of brutalized black bodies there's like a lot of essays that happen every time another police officer kills a black person of like i'm not gonna watch another um you know one of these videos like again kind of thing and it's it's this kind of, I think Claudia Rankin is sort of writing from that 
position in this way, even though this actually like comes a little before like a lot of the not police brutality, but the kind of like the iPhone video capture of all those horrible killings. Um, and so is mo more experiencing it like, you know, via like cable news or whatever. And it's interesting to me in that sense that there's still that the speaker and, and Rankin still have that kind of like becoming numb, but also having this sadness ab about this, I guess, and sort of like using the flatness of, of prose, not like of all prose, but using a kind of flat prose style to sort of like replicate the feeling that the speaker is sort of having given all this, I guess. I don't know if that really makes sense, but. No, that makes perfect sense. And it actually fits really neatly in with something that I was reading earlier today that is very similar to what, what Lerner is talking about and the feeling that you get from this poem. And it was actually uh, my beloved former literature professor, one of the most incisive cultural critics I have had you know, the opportunity to meet in my life, I had a little thread on Twitter that was basically about sort of reflecting on the use of images and the civil rights movement and our present situation. And the way that he was contextualizing that is very similar to what I feel like is going on in this poem and that eventual feeling of flatness or distance. And basically what he was talking about is that the civil rights movement of the 20th century coincided with the birth of television. So that when you have incidents like those that took place in Selma broadcast into people's living rooms, the idea that um, the world was watching or that these horrors were taking place in your living room was visceral and immediate and had a sense of implication to it about who the, like how the viewers felt when they were watching it. Uh, and you see that reflected in some of the, you know, music and speeches that are given at the time. You have the staple singers who have a song with the lyrics. idea that that imagery production has a, a sort of visceral and immediate impact and it's not that that isn't still true but because we have become accustomed to images circulating constantly we as viewers are more capable of watching without feeling the strong sense of personal implication when we see stuff because we have had to develop coping mechanisms for the number of visual horrors that we witness in our lives just because of how the world is organized now around television. Um, and he also makes the point, uh, or at least in his analysis, that basically what also began to happen is that because of the profusion of images and devices, there also begins to be a bit of a blurring between reality and unreality, which is a whole function of the internet age. But he was specifically sort of making the point that there are really visceral horrors that it is easier for a larger number of people to deny or to not feel implicated in. Also tying that to like the ability to support figures like the president who advocate for horrific things that there is demonstrable evidence for the horrors of, but which can be washed away in a, in a sense of, oh, whatever. And I think <laughs> that that comes through in this, in this poem. And one thing that I found really um, engaging about it is that even though it has that sort of flatness and delivery, 
the chosen subject matter is a stroke of quiet genius because it is so thematically rich that it could be delivered very flatly, but you still are super invested and feel like you're seeing something that you're familiar with in a new way, which is an exciting thing to read and be thinking about, even if it's being delivered to you a little bit more matter-of-factly or with sort of a quieter prose. And so I was also thinking about the fact that like presidential election cycles, as we mentioned before, you know, the old adage, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose, which is (laughs) usually meant in like, oh, you know, you campaign in ideals and you govern in practicals, which is a little bit of a theme that runs through the poem and that at least the way that Cornell West talks about the difference between hope and optimism, the distinction he draws is that optimism looks at the evidence to see whether it allows us to infer that we can do X or Y. Hope says, I don't give a damn, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. But I think one thing I hadn't really put together until reading this poem, at least for myself, is that presidential election cycles are the one time, I think, that the broad American electorate, at least the only one that I am familiar enough with to make a statement about, but it's the only time that they all really behave like poetry readers where every single statement and action of a candidate is parsed from the way that they like eat a corn dog to the way that they talk about defense policy and a single (laughs) wrong word or misplaced comma or stumble on a staircase can be the end of a campaign because you look silly doing it. And that one moment becomes defining. And I feel like that's, I don't know of other instances where everybody is reading something that closely, (laughs) whether they're doing it right or not is a whole other question but everybody is paying (laughs) such intense careful attention and i mean careful in a very broad sense obviously because you know everyone's susceptible to misinformation but the fact that in campaign cycles essentially we're all poetry readers of politics was something that i hadn't really thought about but was interesting to to have in mind as this poem was was unfolding Something that's interesting is that kind of the centerpiece of this poem is someone having a visceral reaction to something they see on TV and not being a passive viewer. Um, It's so intense that basically like the spirit of an ancestor is conjured and then it speaks through the speaker. Um, That's how I read those two things in the middle. I was, I'm not totally convinced of that, but that was how I read is that she hears her mother's voice in her head and then she finds that she is yelling at her television and for for context what she is responding to is in the second presidential debate in 2000 george bush and al gore were talking about a lynching that had occurred in texas in 1998 and basically as a response to that there were there was hate crimes legislation that was entered in the senate and george w bush was not interested in passing the law and his defense for why he wasn't interested in this stronger hate crimes legislation. No, I don't really. On hate crimes laws? No, I, we got one in Texas and guess what? The three men who, uh, who uh, murdered James Byrd, guess what's gonna happen to them? They're gonna be put to death. And in fact, only two of them had. Another thing that you had said that I think is, is really right of how, even though there's this kind of flat prose perhaps this the subject matter is anything but um and like the the speaker's reaction is is not flat at all there i think i think you're right that's basically starts yelling at the tv with the voice of her mother 
which is pretty amazing. You don't know because you don't care, which, yeah, then reminds me of when Kanye used to be legit and uh, George Bush doesn't care about black people. That's a good poll. That's true. Um, It's also interesting because I feel like moments like that are where this poem is very quietly, again, pointing to harsh and strong critiques. So the implicit thing also is like, you don't know because you don't care. And in the year 2000, George W. Bush's whole brand was compassionate conservatism. This is, he was sort of playing for like the politics of the late 20th century, which was the idea of the third way, which was Bill Clinton, his big thing, and Tony Blair, who was technically in the Labor Party over in the UK, but they were trying to find a third version of politics that wasn't tied to these partisan ideologies, but was one of compromise and progress and neoliberal utopianism. And so Bush, through that branding in 2000, was looking for that avenue because being as religious as he was, at least at that point, he wasn't as concerned with the evangelical vote because he kind of naturally was an inheritor to it. And it wasn't fully understood, at least at that point, I don't think how crucial that would be. But like fairly compared to other Republicans at the time, progressive sounding views about issues like immigration, like also kind of playing on his father's legacy, which Neil Young so delightfully summed up as having a kinder, gentler machine gun hand in Rockin' in the Free World. But I feel like she's sort of puncturing that idea and pointing to the ways that um, that sort of banality to him or that like, oh, I could have a beer with him, which is something that he still gets away with, um, is like still dangerous and is a way to mask violence and really important progress and conversations. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because then... I don't know, I keep thinking about this, the, the last part of this poem that starts like, I forget things too, it makes me sad, or it makes me the sadness. And there's just this, it's very like, the sadness is not really about George W. or American optimism. The sadness lives in the recognition that a life cannot matter. Or as there are billions of lives, my sadness is alive alongside the recognition that billions of lives never mattered. I write this without breaking my heart, without bursting into anything. Perhaps this is the real source of my sadness. Um, and it's it's very like, whereas a, to go back to the kind of the Ben Lerner thing, like quote unquote traditional lyric poem might never use the word sad or like talk specifically about the emotions that the speaker is having. The poem would evoke or summon sadness or something like actually you know what the living do is sort of a perfect mirror image of this poem in in that respect where the end of what the living do is this for those who don't know that one uh, marie howe the poet is sort of remembering her brother who's who's died and the very end and is sort of just going about her life and then the end is just this simple i am living i remember you And in the language, there's no like, I feel sad when I remember you. Like, there's no, like, obviously, as I say it, terrible. But the restraint and the simplicity of just describing the, the simple, like, I am living fact, I remember you, sort of just like 
very basic because of all the poem before it and all that stuff evokes such a powerful emotional response for me as a reader, like whenever I read it. Um, and this poem is like talking about sadness all the time, at least especially in this last part, that's like, what is the source of the sadness? But in doing so, like is evoking not sadness in a certain, well, I don't know. I mean, it's complicated, but like there's, you know, I write this without breaking my heart, without bursting into anything. There's such a like, purely from a craft perspective, and then we can move into something a little more substantive in terms of the content. Like the the tension between the kind of the form and the content or the tone and the content is like what allows both poems to work in a certain way. Where like the Marie Howe, what the living do, evokes the sadness by not talking about it uh, or evokes the pain by not mentioning it. And this poem, by mentioning the sadness, like evokes this other really intense feeling. But like, it's hard to, like if, if you had a very flat prose that also wasn't talking about sadness, it would just be really pretty boring, my guess would be, because uh, there's no tension. And if you had something about that was talking about sadness and then also trying to pull at your tonal heartstrings, then it would be too much or something potentially, um, where it's like, okay, you got to, it's like the, the, the four, the, the kind of contrast between like what's being described, which Rankin sort of starts getting into really in the first section where like that last line where it's just like a distraction from Bush himself and then just goes into that the same Bush who can't remember if two or three people were convicted for dragging a black man to his death in his home state of Texas, where it's just like, oh, like shit. Like we're, it's, the tone is like pretty matter of fact, but it's like, we're talking about the, basest white supremacist violence right here and then you know the sadness like also it's so detached it's like not even a feeling that the speaker has it's like something that's it's like another thing that's like being observed from a distance you know like and you know the these like little you know the sadness lives in the recognition that a life cannot matter to then my sadness is alive alongside the recognition. I don't know. It's, it's just like interesting. Cause you're like a wit. It's like the speaker's aware of it and it's there and it's alive, but it's not like the speaker isn't feeling it fully. If that makes sense or isn't able to, or is choosing not to. And that sort of gets to, I think like this kind of, this end part where it's like Cornell West says, this is what's wrong with black people today. Too nihilistic, too scarred by hope to hope, too experienced to experience, too close to dead is what I think, which is an, just an incredible last line. But the too experienced to experience is like such a, a great way of putting it where it's like, I can't afford to feel this feeling of sadness again. 
and hoping to allow oneself to hope, I think, means you would also have to feel this this feel the sadness in a full kind of way because but there's anyway i mean it, in a very crude sense there i feel like there's this kind of like the kind of nihilism that the speaker talks about cornell west having that there's a certain condition of when you like when one lives in a country that has you know plundered and exploited and killed and oppressed in any number of ways like uh people who you know look like you because of the color of your skin and white supremacy and racism and for 400 years i think something that the speaker of this poem is articulating is that like the inability to maintain hope that this happens again and again and again and again and like the at least for certain moments um but i think probably is the experience of some um and actually i've heard it described a little bit i i don't i'm not as familiar with the book but like richard wright's native son has been described as like a kind of black nihilism perspective where it's like if there's no hope that things will change, then like, what do you do? And I think that part of the reason why I was drawn to this poem is like, I think like encountering that experience in a poem is also very important because people have so many, you know, just like emotional dynamics. And I think like, it's, it's really important to like, engage with that the full a full as full of a range of those experiences as possible like when considering some you know political situation or something like that and that i think for some white people myself at one time i think i have been thinking about it a little more for a few years before this but like the kind of shock or being like appalled and like stirred into action quote unquote by white people in response to this you know like the murder of George Floyd or something speaks to the fact that prior to that time they and I at one point had never really had to encounter the fact that this had been a reality forever in their lifetime before that if that makes sense whereas like here it's like like the speaker talks about the inability to maintain hope um and like the too close to dead is what i think which is like i don't know i i'm sort of like speaking in circles but um i just found that very powerful and this poem like really like articulates that experience in a very interesting way in terms of a poem but also and also the fact that this is like also a historical poem now it's like from the the george bush era right which now some crazy people are like let's go back to the time of george bush or something it's like fuck no but anyway we're not talking about those people i forget sorry i brought it up but that it's like even at that point 
this had already already been happening so much you know what i mean so yeah i love that last line so much because it starts with it's a it's a beautiful movement of a that like a prose poem can make which is like where the movement is in the sentence where like the first two parts too scarred by hope to hope to experience to experience is a rephrasing of cornell west's critique that they're that black people are too nihilistic but then this the last part too close to dead is what i think with the like is what i think at the end like makes turns that last part into this is not just like me repeating Cornell West like this is like my own take and that is in some ways a critique of Cornell West's critique I guess but the way that it just moves like in this sort of this like repetition in the sentence where you don't even realize you've turned until you're already turned like putting the is what I think at the end is like so good because you're like, oh, before then you could think of too close to dead is sort of the speaker repeating Cornell West. But in fact, that's the speaker like pushing it further. And yeah, I just, it's like, so good. Uh, it's really good. And those two parts are two of the parts that kind of reach out to the present moment almost, it feels explicitly, though that's impossible because it was written, you know, between 16 and 20 years ago. Um, but as you were saying, all of the, the different ways that the sadness is being articulated, it's also being historically contextualized because it's talking about lives that haven't mattered, billions of lives. And obviously that echoes forward to us now with the Black Lives Matter movement and the very simple, seemingly factual statement that Black Lives Matter and the necessity for that statement being so obvious to so many. And that's exactly what she's engaging with here. She's talking about all of these lives, like the one that George W. Bush uh, seems to not care about being viewed by society broadly as disposable in some way. But that's also the historical echo of that is during the civil rights movement when many people wore the iconic placards that just said, I am a man, which you would think is a simple and factual statement about a human being that wouldn't be a radical political one, but it was because it was a black man wearing it. And there was the necessity to assert humanity at that point. And that is essentially the exact same political project that Black Lives Matter is engaged with. Society has so devalued black life generally that it is important to make these very basic statements. And I feel like there's an element of that in the sadness and especially in the way that it's being described because it's engaging with this history of erasure and you know social disinterest and social devaluation. And then at the end, too close to dead is what I think obviously reflects back to her discussion of this lynching that had happened only two years prior, but you know, just, a few days before this was recorded, there was a video taken of an attempted lynching in Indiana. It's still happening. It never stopped happening. And the ability for white people to brush aside or not engage with or not think about the degree to which many black people have to worry about whether or not they're going to die if they go camping or drive through Indiana. I have a friend who always told me that he was most afraid driving through Indiana of all the states he ever drove through, that was the one that scared him the most. And obviously Indiana is the birthplace of the modern day 
KKK and I think it had the most clan chapters in the country for a long time, possibly still does, but it's like people don't necessarily think about it because it's in the North, but there is a strong white supremacist element there. Um, and it is a dangerous place to exist as a black person as the United States can be, as has been shown by the profusion of videos. And there's no, you know, assumption of support from law enforcement. And in fact, law enforcement themselves can be dangerous. So this political idea that's being articulated that, um, cause Cornell West's whole thing with this hope versus optimism, as I was saying, like hope doesn't concern itself with the practical necessarily. Optimism is all well and good, but it looks at reality and it says we have this and we want to get to that. And how can we get to the thing that works? And one of the things that he says about this is that the danger of hope obviously is that you have this large fall if you fail and his take on that you'll be wrestling with despair Goethe is right he or she who has never despaired has never lived you don't know what it is to be human if you never wrestle with despair and I feel like there's an element of despair wrestling going on throughout this poem and in fact that's kind of what the the IMH the inability to maintain hope I think that would usually be described as despair. So there's this incredibly human act, if we're gonna put this in you know, Cornell West's terms, which is where that part of the poem comes in. It's where she's articulating his point of view directly before that is where she's talking about the inability to maintain hope. But there is this other factor, which is that it's not just despair, it's that hope can be dangerous. And there is this tension, and there has been, and in fact, a lot of admittedly fairly reductive political analysis that gets done on, you know, the habits of black voters, which is kind of ridiculous because obviously, you know, black people aren't going to all vote one way, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some things that are broadly true, the same way that for older white voters, they mostly vote Republican, black voters trend heavily Democratic. But they are not necessarily the most liberal wing of the Democratic Party. There's a reason that Joe Biden's primary campaign was saved in South Carolina during this election cycle, because there were a large number of black voters. And it's not just his association with Obama. It's also that there is a calculation that is done or the way that the political uh, science analysis is done is that black voters are not necessarily going to go for a radical candidate because there's a greater risk involved there. And I feel like this is in conversation with that political science analysis of like black electoral psyche, where it's saying maybe Cornell West thinks that we're, oh, we just don't hope enough and we're not radical enough and we're not, you know, engaged in his critique and we're not signing up for his revolution, but maybe we just don't want to die. And I watched, you know, a candidate not even care that somebody who looks like me died. Um, and of course, the very interesting extension to all of this is that Cornell West then became one of the most vocal critics of Mr. Hope himself, Barack Obama. So, <laughs> you know, I, am fascinated with any poem that is in conversation with the idea of hope in the context of electoral politics, because it is, there's basically a hope trope in American politics. Don't, a hope trope. There's a hope trope, sort of like there's a change trope. Um, <laughs> I couldn't think of a good, a change range, a change 
Dange, or I don't know. Hope and change tend to go together, but (laughs) hope especially is something that a lot of candidates play on. Bill Clinton's, one of his campaign slogans was a town called Hope because he was born in Hope, Arkansas. Uh, The little boy from a town called Hope, you know, out there doing his whatever he's doing, uh, (laughs) his, his Clinton nonsense. And obviously Obama ran very successfully on, uh, you know, hope and change. And then very soon after it is weaponized against him during the tea party movement at all these events that Sarah Palin shows up to. And her famous quote is, Oh, how's that hopey changey thing working out for you? And yeah, I like that this poem, in addition to all of the other, subjects that it is tackling and conversations it's engaged with it is also adding i don't know not a critical voice but it's adding perspective on the idea of hope in the context of american electoral politics um i really like the way that it does that yeah no that's a really good point it's one reason that i like poetry so much is that it's not a claim about that sort of like fact about hope being used in that way in politics you know it's more just like what is the experience of like being a black person in the time of bush winning in america and thinking about hope and optimism and like trying sometimes to and you know and just like wrestling with those ideas like, what is that like? And I just find that very, like, powerful and compelling. And I think, like, the real, like, interior of the speaker, even though the the poem in some ways reads, like, unemotionally, is just so, I don't know. It's, like, very devastating in a quiet way. Um, it is interesting because it yeah you're right it doesn't read emotionally but it is still deeply felt yeah exactly and somehow Um, it manages to do both yeah (laughs) i know it's remarkable um should we read it again let's do it all right this is from don't let me be lonely by claudia rankin Cornell West makes the point that hope is different from American optimism. After the initial presidential election results come in, I stop watching the news. I want to continue watching, charting, and discussing the counts, the recounts, the hand counts, but I cannot. I lose hope. However Bush came to have won, he would still be winning 10 days later, and we would still be in the throes of our American optimism. All the non-reporting is a distraction from Bush himself, the same Bush who can't remember if two or three people were convicted for dragging a black man to his death in his home state, Texas. You don't remember because you don't care. Sometimes my mother's voice swells and fills my forehead. Mostly I resist the flooding but in Bush's case, I find myself talking to the television screen. You don't know because you don't care. Then, like all things impassioned, this voice takes on a life of its own. You don't know because you don't bloody care, do you? 
I forget things too. It makes me sad, or it makes me the saddest. The sadness is not really about George W. or our American optimism. The sadness lives in the recognition that a life cannot matter. Or, as there are billions of lives, my sadness is alive alongside the recognition that billions of lives never mattered. I write this without breaking my heart, without bursting into anything. Perhaps this is the real source of my sadness. Or perhaps Emily Dickinson, my love, hope, was never a thing with feathers. I don't know. I just find when the news comes on, I switch the channel. This new tendency might be indicative of a deepening personality flaw, IMH, the inability to maintain hope, which translates into no innate trust in the supreme laws that govern us. Cornell West says this is what is wrong with black people today, too nihilistic, too scarred by hope to hope, too experienced to experience, too close to dead is what I think. Thank you so much for listening. You can keep up with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at Close Talking. You can follow me and get in touch with me at Connor M. Stratton or Jack on Twitter at Jack Rossiter Munn. You can also send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if there's another reading you have of this poem we discussed or any other poem we've discussed or if there's a piece or work or poem that you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. <laughs>